Well, I'm going to um, start a new series of sermons today from a, an ancient letter uh, that was written nearly 2,000 years ago, which we know as the letter to the Hebrews. And Hebrews, I don't know about you, if any of you have ever read Hebrews, but Hebrews is one of those New Testament books that just really stands out for me. It, it's just a, it's one of my most favorite um, books of the New Testament. But I'll admit that to someone who doesn't read the Bible regularly, or you know, to someone who's just a casual reader, um, Hebrews could be a really strange book to read, and maybe even a difficult book to read, because it rambles on about things that you know you don't talk about every day. These are not burning topics of conversation. It starts with this complex discussion about um, angels and what God didn't say to them. And then it continues with like a brief treatment of Psalm 95, and it speaks about what rest really means. It moves on to discuss a man named Melchizedek, whom Abraham met at one time and who remains unknown to most people today. And then it goes on to talk about the furniture in the wilderness tabernacle, and it ends with this exhortation to go outside of the camp. Now, anybody talk about that stuff every day? None of that stuff comes up in regular conversation, you know, even amongst followers of Jesus, amongst Christians. And yet, it's a New Testament book that has so much for us. There's so much for us to learn and grow from. And I want to just remind you, remember, that is my prayer for us as a church community this year. That's my prayer. I started out this year, 2023, with that encouragement that this year, 2023, is going to be a different year for you spiritually. That we will all finish 2023 having grown spiritually, that we would be more mature Christians and more committed in our devotion to Jesus. So we are now just past, we're, we're, we're almost approaching the end of July. So we are like well past the halfway point for 2023. I'm not going to ask you how it's going. I'll do that check in December. But I really and truly hope that, that, that that's what it's stacking up to be in your life. That 2023 is stacking up to be a year where you are drawing closer to God. Where you are learning more about Him. And that you're maturing and growing in your faith. Okay. Well, you know, this is not an old style church. I don't stand up here like some of those churches you go to with a big pulpit looking down at you, and everybody's deathly silent because that's the reverence and awe of God. No, this is a modern-day church. And so if I say something, and you're going, good, say it out. No, oh, that's good, Andrew. I, I, I like that because then I know I'm getting through. Sometimes what churches do, people in churches, they go, amen. And just by saying that word, amen, you, you, you mean so be it, so be it. Yeah, I agree with that. So I invite you just to have that freedom this morning, okay? Amen. Okay, so good, be so be it. All right, let's uh, get into it. Um, amen. amen. <laughs> Watch it. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start by giving you the setting in which this, this letter was written. So we're going to be looking at Hebrews over the next couple of weeks. We're going to be taking, not going to be going through everything in Hebrews, but going to be taking out some, some of the learnings, some of the things that, get really, that can encourage us and help us in our walk with God. Um, so has anybody here ever been to Rome? 
Quite a few people have been to Rome. What an amazing city. If you ever have the opportunity to visit it, it really is. I've been to Rome a few times. And the, the thing about Rome is you've just got these ancient ruins. They're all over the place. There's, you know, in some shape or form, there are all these old buildings or bits of old buildings. So it's just an amazing thing that, that parts of ancient Rome are still standing today in, in, the, in the 21st century. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to take you back to a time nearly 2,000 years ago to a hot summer evening uh, in, the, in the ancient city of Rome on the night of July the 18th and 19th in 64 AD. A fire broke out at a chariot racetrack called the Circus Maximus. And all of the buildings, the shops and things that surrounded this chariot racetrack had a lot of combustible materials in them. And so one by one they all caught fire. And then the wind picked up and this fire raged through the city of Rome for five days. It, it landed up burning half of the city of Rome to the ground. Now the Roman emperor at the time was a guy whose name was Nero. And Nero was on holiday in his hometown in uh, Antium on the Italian coast. And he gets news of this fire in, in, the, in the great city of Rome. So he gets all these people, his whole entourage, and they head back to, to Rome. Nero gets back to Rome to hear the rumors circulating through the city that he was the one who started the fire. That the city was like in uproar, and, and, and this rumor was circulating that Nero was the one who started the fire because he wanted to rebuild the city of Rome according to his own plans. And Nero, if you know Nero, he wasn't really, we'll talk a bit about him, he wasn't really a nice guy, but he wasn't happy with the accusations that were being leveled against him. And so what Nero decided to do was to find a scapegoat. And so he decided to blame the Christians living in the city of Rome, he decided to blame the fire on the Christians in Rome. An ancient Roman historian named Tacitus, who lived during Nero's reign, said this. He said, a huge multitude of them, a huge multitude of Christians got convicted. And they were convicted not so much on the ground of fire setting as for hatred of the human race. This just, this just evolved, it just developed, right? Tacitus also tells us <clears throat> that these Christians uh, were executed. Many of them were executed, and uh, the, in the words of Tac Tacitus, um, their execution was made a matter of sport. Some got sewn up in the skins of uh, wild beasts and savaged to death by dogs. Others got fastened to crosses. And, and I don't know if they were tarred or oiled or whatever they did, but they set those live human beings on fire at night to provide light. This is under the Emperor Nero. True True story. This is history, right? Nero became emperor in 54 AD. He was 17 years old when he became the emperor, and, and he landed up being probably the most vile of all the Roman emperors. According to his biographer Suetonius, Suetonius says, said that Nero practiced every sort of obscenity. It ranged from incest to cruelty to animals to homicide. Nero, if you go and read about him, you'll find that he was an adulterer. He was a murderer, he was a homosexual, he was a cross-dresser, and he was a pedophile. Just an awful, awful man. 
This is what Tacitus says. He says, Nero uh, polluted himself by every lawful or lawless indulgence and did not omit a single abomination which could heighten his depravity. Now, one of the big problems that Rome had with Christians was that the Christians would not engage in emperor worship. If you go back and study history, you'll find that, that the Roman emperors were, were to be regarded as Lord, right? So it was like, hail to Caesar, or hail the emperor. It was like, you, you are Lord. And, and people were required to make sacrifices to the emperors. And Christians refused to do it. Everybody else was doing it, but Christians refused to do it. And so these ac- accusations about hatred for the human race started to come about because nobody really knew who these Christians were. Nobody knew really much about who these followers of the way were. And so one of the things that the Christians would do was they would celebrate communion together. But the rest of the, the, the world at the time did not know what these Christians were doing. What they did know was that they were eating the body and they were drinking the blood. And so because people didn't know what was going on, they started to call them, they, they, they started to blame them for cannibalism. And uh, they just began to look at these Christians and think, what on earth is going on over there? Because, you know, they're eating and drinking the body and, and blood. You know, we do that, the body and blood of, of Christ. And, and so they didn't know what the deal was. We're in the 21st century. We kind of understand. We've had a long time to get it into our minds and, our, and into our heads. But in early Rome, in, in ancient Rome, they, did, they had no idea. Uh, they accused them of being sexually promiscuous and, and uh, you know, because like a married couple would call each other brother and sister and, and there was all this stuff going on. So Christians in ancient Rome were, were easy scapegoats for the city's anger arising from this, this great fire. Now in Rome at the time, there were a number of early Christian churches. They weren't churches as we would understand them to be today, right? So they didn't have churches church buildings and things where they would gather for the purpose of worship back in the first century. If you think about a New Testament church, and when we read the New Testament, we find all of these letters that are written to churches. Um, And so when we think about New Testament churches, we should really be thinking of much smaller groups of people, maybe a little bit smaller than than our group of people here today. So uh, home fellowship groups, 15, 20, 25 people who would gather together in somebody's home for the purpose of worship and, and for prayer, and they would share in the Lord's Supper, communion, and, and, and read Scripture together, read the Old Testament, and read the letters that were being written by the apostles. So typically, it would be a family with a few relatives, maybe several neighbors, you know, a couple of employees, they would get together for worship. So in Rome, at the time, there was a network of these house churches. And many of the people in these churches were Jewish believers in Jesus. Now in 64 AD, when that fire broke out, Judaism was officially recognized as a religion in Rome. It was kind of like tolerated. These Jewish people are a bit strange, but the Jews were officially recognized as a religious group. So because Jews uh, were recognized, they, they had some level of legal protection. Christianity, though, was brand new. Christianity had no protection, no legal protection. In fact, Christianity was viewed as an illegal philosophy. 
and, uh, and because there was no freedom of religion in ancient Rome, Christians could be discriminated against, right? Christians could be slandered and persecuted without any repercussion. So this is the setting for the book of Hebrews. It became increasingly dangerous for people to be associated with Christianity. And many Jewish Christians in these house churches were tempted to give up on this Christian faith thing. To, you know, to, to leave that and go back to Judaism. Because their lives were in danger. Their property was being taken. Their, their families were being threatened. You know, so why not just give up and go back to simply being a Jew? You know, let's just forget about this idea and choose not to believe that, that Jesus was the Messiah. I think a great contemporary analogy to the situation of the Jewish believers in, in Rome 2,000 years ago, a contemporary um, analogy would be China. Today there are millions of Chinese Christians who attend unregistered or so-called underground churches. And under the dictator, Xi Jinping, these unofficial churches have come under persecution. President Xi and the, and, the, and the Communist Party have really come down hard on unregistered churches. And so there are some churches in China that are, that are government approved. And from what I've read, a lot of those churches have to actually install security cameras from the pulpit so that the Chinese officials can actually do facial um, yeah, facial recognition, that, that use that scanning technology to identify who is in that church congregation. And so the Chinese government has really worked hard to shut down churches that they don't deem should be there. They've shut down a lot of churches. Bibles have been confiscated. Crosses are routinely removed from churches. Many church buildings have been demolished. And it's not only the Christian faith. We've seen this with some Muslim communities as well. But pastors and church leaders have been thrown into prison. Church members have been fired from their jobs. And, and, and children who have been going to these unregistered churches have been denied admission to university. And under this pressure from the government, many Chinese Christians have been tempted to give up. right? To not publicly identify with Christianity or to drop out of these underground unregistered churches and maybe just attend a government-sanctioned church. And so it's a similar kind of picture for what was happening with these Jewish Christians in early in, in ancient Rome. Now, you know, in every age and in every nation, the world has used whatever means of social control that it has at its disposal to force followers of Jesus into line. To get Christians to agree and accept the cultural and social value system. You just think uh, of religious dictatorships like Iran for example or political dictatorships when a country is under that kind of dictatorship churches often get closed followers of Jesus get jailed tortured even put to death and if you live in a country like Australia where there is some form of legal protection the pressure is different the pressure can be social or economic right somebody knows that you're a committed Christian so you might not get that promotion at your job. You might not uh, get hired even if they know that you're a committed Christian. You might find yourself at school and, and, and you're being made fun of at school or on your sports team. Many Christians I know gets, 
you know, kind of verbally abused and slandered and spoken badly of because of your faith. So the dominant culture hates it when people don't march in step with its values. And today, we're seeing a lot of that kind of pressure in Australia. If you think of the whole pride agenda and the push to embrace you know, that under the guise of diversity and inclusion, you know, you're seeing an agenda right there. And Christians are being forced to, to comply with what the world says you need to comply with. There's a big push against Christian education. The culture that we live in is really is, can be quite intolerant of Christian principles and standards and values. And that is the spirit of every age. That's why we call Satan, why the scripture calls Satan, the God of this world. Now, the book of Hebrews was written to encourage Christians not to give up, to never give up, even under the most severe pressure. And that's the title of my message this morning, Never Give Up. Okay, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that in the power of your spirit this morning, you would take this message and that it would speak to hearts and minds. I pray, Lord, in the next couple of moments that our eyes would be upon you, that our hearts would be open and ready to receive what you want to say to us this morning. So we just give you room to move right now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's read the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 1. The writer or the author says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Amen. You know, there's nothing more important in life, nothing more cru crucial to your future than having Jesus Christ at the center of your life. There's nothing more crucial to my life than having Jesus at the center. And I'm always interested in why it is that some people stick with Jesus? Why is it that some people keep following Jesus? Why is it that some people r remain actively involved in his work in this world? Why is it that some people are actively part of a church community? Because a lot of people give up. A lot of people walk away from the faith. They walk away from God. They walk away from the church. So why is it that some people never give up? And that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about the human side of that equation. Why is it that some people stick to God? They just stick with God. I think the main reason for any of us sticking with God is because we know God is a faithful God, right? We, we know that God loves us, that he keeps holding on to us. The Apostle Paul wrote this in Philippians chapter 1. He said, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So, church, so Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing to the church at Philippi, and he says, man, I'm just, I'm just filled with joy because from the time that you surrendered your life 
to God from the time that you made that commitment, man, you've just been out there spreading this good news, telling others. And, and Paul says, man, I'm so confident that God, who has begun a good work in you, is going to carry it on. He's going to carry on doing a good work in you right to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Whether that day is the day when, when Jesus appears or whether that's the day when you go to meet him. And we're all going to go to meet him at some point or other. But Paul writes these words to the Philippians. And then we have these well-known verses in Romans chapter 8, where again the Apostle Paul says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we have these portions of Scripture where we see that God's going to continue to do a good work in us. If we are open to and receptive to His work in our lives, God's going to do something great in and through us. And here Paul says, man, there's absolutely nothing that can separate you from, from the love of God. So we know that, that that's God's view towards us. But what about the human side? What does the author of Hebrews tell us keeps us anchored to our faith? What enables a Christian to never give up on God? What enables a Christian to never give up on the church despite all of the pressures of this world to do exactly that? Let's read the first two verses of Hebrews again. The author says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. I think the first thing that keeps people from giving up on God, from giving up on his church, is this. It's a conviction that God has spoken. The first thing that's going to keep someone from giving up on God is a deep conviction that God has spoken. And, and, and the author of Hebrews tells us that the first place where God has spoken is in Scripture. So there's a deep conviction that God has spoken in Scripture. We're going to look at what the author writes, but I, I just want to say that the, we don't really know who the author of Hebrews is. Over the centuries, there's been a bunch of different people who've they said, who they've attributed this letter to, to in, in, including some women, by the way. But scholars do agree that Hebrews was written by a well-trained Greek-speaking Jewish Christian who was immersed in the Old Testament scriptures, or the Hebrew scriptures, and who then wrote to other Greek-speaking Jewish Christians who were most likely under the persecution of Nero. So what keeps people in the faith? Well, firstly, it's this conviction that God has spoken. God has spoken. Let's read Hebrews 1 verse 1 again. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. In, in Old Testament times, God spoke constantly through the Holy Spirit in the law and the prophets. And God spoke to his people to lead them into greater truth. So this is an amazing statement that, the, that the, uh, the author of Hebrews opens with. God spoke. God spoke. There is a totally different relationship that anyone can have with a being who speaks and a being who doesn't. 
for those of you who are dog owners, imagine you come home one night and you get to the front, do, front door and you open the door and the dog looks up at you and says, how was your day? <laughs> You're looking a little tired. Have you still got those relational issues with your boss? You would have an entirely different relationship with your dog if your dog spoke. Followers of Jesus who never give up are people who have a deep conviction that God has spoken through the scriptures. A deep conviction that God has spoken. That God did not leave us guessing about how to have a relationship with himself. That God did not leave us guessing about what he is like. That God did not leave us guessing about what the way is to a wholesome, good, satisfying life. You have a deep conviction about that. It's not like, oh, well, yeah, this is so confusing. This is so, oh, I don't understand this. Well, I can't read the Bible. It's so mysterious. No one can really tell me anything of any meaning thing about God. You know, I don't understand the truth. You know, you come across people like this. You know, you know I'm just left guessing all the time. Maybe some of us have that view. But someone who never gives up on God has this deep conviction that God has spoken. And the people who stick in the Christian faith are people who have a deeply rooted conviction that God has spoken through the words that are in this book, in the scriptures. Now you might ask why, why, why should Christians believe that God has spoken in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, because that's what the author of Hebrews is writing about. You know, why should we believe that God has spoken? Because you can go to the professionals, you can go to all these academics and these, you know, these biblical scholars, and there's a lot of them who say that there's nothing particularly special or unique about the Old Testament. Because over the centuries, archaeologists have found these ancient religious books and these ancient religious texts, and they're going, well, there's no real difference between this and what's written in the Old Testament. Well, I want to tell you something this morning. Something that really stands out about the Old Testament and, and, and other religious texts that we know of from the ancient world is monotheism. Monotheism is found everywhere in the Old Testament. The Old Testament continually insists that the Lord is one, that there's no other being in the same category as Him. And thousands of years since the Old Testament was written, there are still only three monotheistic religions in the world. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And all of them get their monotheism, their belief in one God from one source, the Old Testament. Now, we just we to think about that for a moment because in the ancient world, if you go back and, 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 and study this, you'll find that in the ancient world, people believed in hundreds of different gods, hundreds of different goddesses. But it was only Israel and the Old Testament that insisted that there was one God. And some people held on to that belief to the point of death. Now, how did they come up with that idea? How did they come up with the idea that there was one God when the whole, when everybody else, the rest of the world was saying, no, no, there's hundreds of gods. Why did this one little nation come up with the idea that there is one God? God spoke. God spoke. The ancient world was filled with all different kinds of idols, people bowed down to images of men and women and, and, and birds and fish and bulls and all kinds of things. And the, the ancient religious texts reflect that. But only the Old Testament insisted that you could not depict God with an idol. You could not depict God with any image. 
In fact, when the Roman general Titus invaded Jerusalem in 70 AD, he went into the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, he went into the holy place, the Holy of Holies, because he wanted to see what the idol was that the Jews worshipped in the Holy of Holies. He wanted to see what it looked like. There had to be something special about that room. And so he broke into the Holy of Holies, and you know what he discovered there? Nothing. It was empty. There was no idol. There was no image. God's people did not worship using an, an idol when everybody else did. Why not? Because of a conviction that God had spoken in the Scriptures. So why believe that God has spoken in the Bible? <laughs> well, it's because of how radically different the message is. How unique the belief system is. It's how uncommon the ethics are compared to the culture of the day. And so you've got to say, something external had to have intervened over here. The Bible had to be an intervention from the outside. There had to be some kind of revelation from outside of the, the worldly system of that day. And you know, the New Testament is the same. It's just as unique as the Old Testament. Because the New Testament took shape in, in a, in a Greco-Roman world where there were all different kinds of strange philosophies and different kinds of gods. And so it's as unique as the Old Testament is in, in the ancient Near East world. But the Old Testament was just partial. And that's what the author of Hebrews wanting, is wanting to pass on to us here this morning. It was preparatory. It was a signpost to someone. It was pointing to someone. And so the second reason why people don't give up on God, why people don't give up on his church, is a deep conviction that God has spoken, not only in Scripture, but God has spoken in his Son. God has spoken in his Son. Jesus is the fulfillment. Let's read verse 2 again. The author says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. So Jesus is God's perfect revelation. Here's what we read in verse 3. It says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. See, previously God had spoken through the law. He had spoken through the prophets. But now God has spoken to us through his Son. The Son, as God, acting in the world. The one who with the Father and the Holy Spirit created the universe. The radiance of God's glory. Right? These, are, these, these words express the nature and the origin and identity of Jesus. He is the Father's radiance because he is begotten of the Father who is beyond time and without change. The Nicene Creed speaks of light of light. Light of light. Just like the sun can't exist without radiating light, so the Father does not exist without his Son. The Son reflects the Father's glory in this world. The unapproachable light of divinity is now approachable through the incarnate Son. 
And when I say the, the unapproachable light, I'm talking about the Old Testament. When you read, you find that many of those people, when they wanted to engage with God, when they were looking at Mount Sinai, there was like a bright burning flame. Moses, when he wanted to engage, encounter God, says, no, you can't. I'll just pass by. You'll see my shadow. Because of the, you're talking about a light because that light is, is completely holy. So anything that's not holy, God is, is going to die if, if you encounter it. But now God has spoken through his son. So we can approach God through Jesus, the incarnate son. The writer of Hebrews is saying that in Jesus, we have this perfect visible expression of God. It's not just that in Jesus we hear God speaking. It's also that in Jesus we see God's glory. Jesus said, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. John writes this in John 1.14. He says, the word, talking about Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So I'll ask again, what is it that stops a follower of Jesus from giving up? It's a conviction that God has spoken. It's a conviction that God has spoken through Scripture and through Jesus. A Christian is someone who says, I have met with God Almighty in Jesus Christ. In other words, because I've met God in Jesus, I'm not in the dark anymore. Because I've met God in Jesus, I can't claim ignorance anymore. I can't fool myself into saying, well, you know, I still don't really know what's going on. I still don't really know the way to this kind of life. You know, I, I really don't know who God is or what God's like. You can't fool yourself into, into saying that. I, you can't say, well, I don't know what God thinks about this or that behavior in my life. I don't know what God thinks about, you know, if I, whether I continue on in the faith or whether I bail out. No. If you've met Jesus, you're no longer in the dark. You can't claim ignorance. I've heard God's voice in the scripture. I've seen God's glory in Jesus Christ. And folk, that's why we place a fair level of importance on this. This is why this book is so important. Because this book, these books, all 66 of them, for some parts of the church and then there's the Apocrypha, which is in my Bible, which is a great set of books as well, and some churches include those. But within these covers are the words of God, are the words of Jesus Christ. So what is written in this book becomes an authority for my life. When I read, like in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, where Jesus gave that amazing talk that we know is the Sermon on the Mount. When I read the words of Jesus, I say to myself, this is an authority for my life. I submit my life to the words of Christ. I submit my life to the authority of Scripture. That's why this book is so important for any Christian. Can you imagine a doctor who doesn't submit to the medical procedures to treat a wound? Instead of stitching up your wound, he amputates your leg. What kind of doctor is that? Can you imagine a lawyer who doesn't submit to the law, who doesn't submit to legal precedent, and tells you, yeah, you can go and kill that person, you're not going to go to jail. What kind of lawyer is that? 
Can you imagine a pilot who doesn't submit to the landing procedures and lands without releasing the landing gear from the wheel wells? Do you want to be on that plane? What kind of pilot is that? Can you imagine a Christian who does not submit to the authority of Scripture and the words of Jesus and the prompting of the Holy Spirit, who doesn't forgive, who doesn't love, who isn't part of a church community? What kind of Christian is that? Before I I close, there's just one other reason why having found Jesus, we can never give up. In verses 2 and 3, the author gives like seven specific descriptions. And he tells us why Jesus is the most extraordinary person we could ever encounter. So let's just look at them in verse 2 and 3. The author says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word, After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So what do we see over here? What we see, let's just go to that next slide there, Glenn, is that Jesus is God's son. What we see over here is that Jesus is God's appointed heir. What we see is that Jesus is the one through whom creation came about. He is the creation agent of God. He is God's personified glory. If you want to know who God is, look to Jesus. Jesus is God's revelation. If you want to know about this world, about this system, about what's been, about what's to come, you go to Jesus because he is God's revelation to humanity. He is God's cosmic sustainer. The whole world that's living on the planet today don't even realize that they exist because of Jesus. The writer in the book of Acts says, we live and move and have our being in him. If he did not sustain the universe, you'd be gone. He is God's cosmic sustainer. He is God's unique sacrifice because he made a way. He conquered the work of the enemy. Death no longer has any hold on us. And we have an access to be with the Father. We have an access to be with God when we depart this mortal coil. Amen. Isn't he an amazing person? So how do all these things that Jesus is stop us from giving up on God? How do all these things that Jesus is stop us from walking away from his work on this earth through the church? It's because a Christian, a Christian is somebody who makes a commitment to love an extraordinary person. When you've made a commitment to love him, you're not going to walk away from him. You're not going to walk away from him. When you get to know him, when you get to know how he holds all things together, when you get to know how he speaks to us and guides us in life, when you get to know the power of his spirit, when you're sitting on the sidelines and you say, God, just give Jude favor today, and God takes out the other player, that's the God I'm talking about. Not that he takes out everybody, but that he just deals with the situation because that's who he is. It's a commitment to love an extraordinary person. So the reason why we are able to resist temptation, the reason why we are able to do things that are really hard to do, the reason why we 
don't give up, the reason why we stay close to God, the reason why we remain active and part of a church community is because we have made a commitment to something higher. We have made a commitment to something greater. We've made a commitment to something bigger than ourselves. An Orthodox Jewish person you know, will say that it's unthinkable for me to eat a pork sandwich. You might show an Orthodox Jewish person a beautiful, lovely, scrumptious pork sandwich. But that Orthodox Jew will say, no, I can't eat. It looks nice, but I can't eat it because I've made a commitment to something bigger than I am. I've made a commitment to something higher. And so that keeps me from being tempted to eat that pork sandwich. I won't eat pork. A married man is going to say, I've made a commitment to love my wife. So it's unthinkable for me to have an affair because I've given myself to something higher, something bigger than what might be offered in the moment. A missionary doctor will say, I've been called to meet the desperate needs of, you know, medical needs of people living in the Congo. And I know my calling. I know what I'm made for. It's unthinkable for me to set up a practice in Perth and live a nice, comfortable lifestyle because I've been gripped by something more, something more compelling, something higher. And folk, this is what a Christian will say. A Christian will say, it's unthinkable for me to turn my back on Jesus. It's unthinkable. In a moment of temptation, it's unthinkable. It's unthinkable For me to turn my back on Jesus when it comes to a decision about romance or work or entertainment. It's unthinkable. It's unthinkable for me to turn my back on Jesus when I'm being persecuted or when I'm under pressure from others to do things that are not of God. It's unthinkable because I've been gripped by something that's bigger than myself. Something greater than myself. I'm led by something, someone better than myself. I've made a commitment of love to Jesus Christ. And I can't turn my back on this wonderful person who gave himself for me. That's what a Christian's going to say. So I want to encourage you this morning as we get into Hebrews. Maybe pick up your Bible sometime this week and and start reading through it. If you've got a study Bible, have 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 a read through how they explain it. Because it is quite a complicated book. But I want to leave you with this encouragement this morning. Never give up. Be reminded that God has spoken. God has spoken in Scripture and He's spoken to us through His Son. He's with us. He's for us. There's so much more that is still to come with Him. And now I'll say amen. Amen. Let's pray and we'll wrap it up this morning. Lord, I, I, I thank You for the beauty of Your Word. I thank You, God, that a document that was written that 2,000 years ago, literally, still has an impact on lives today. That we can go back and learn from other Christians who were having to deal with life-threatening circumstances. That that still plays out and has a bearing on our own lives. So Lord, I want to thank you for the richness of your word. And I pray God that we would fully grasp it, that we would develop a taste for it, that we would develop a hunger for it so that we would know you more intimately, more deeply. And Lord, I want to pray for this church, Renew. I want to pray for every person who's a part of this church, that really, Lord, by the time we get to the end of this year, 
we'll look back and say, man, I've grown. I've grown in my walk with God. So would you go, Holy Spirit, with each one? Would, would you speak to them and guide them into truth, into life in this week ahead? In Jesus' name, amen.